0: It's fashionable today to be disillusioned with the church. In fact, church disillusionment seems like a rite of passage for many disgruntled evangelicals longing for the pristine pastures of the early church. We long for simpler times of shared meals and passionate worship and the kind of hospitality of the book of Acts, where everything seemed peaceful before sexual morality and greed and idolatry and worldliness infiltrated the church and corrupted it. And to some extent, I sympathize with this sentiment. There's certainly problems in the American church, in the modern church, severe ones that we need to pay attention to. But I want to fight against this romanticizing of the past. Such a time never existed when the church was sinless, when it wasn't dealing with the fallenness of man. And if you crack open the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, specifically chapters 2 and 3, which is an address by Christ to his churches, seven churches in Asia, you find sexual morality, greed, idolatry, and worldliness. The church was as much a mess in the first century as it is now in the 21st century. It's because the church was comprised of sinners in the first century and led by sinners, and it is also still comprised of sinners and led by sinners. But I think there's a lot to learn from these addresses to the churches. We in the 21st century must hear the same spirit who spoke in the first. And the commands to our weaknesses and our flaws and our sins is the same throughout all of history. Remember, repent and follow Christ. And this is to corporate bodies, to corporate churches. Let he who has an ear hear what the spirit says to the churches. That is a warning for us today, an encouragement for us today and something for churches to heed as Christ addresses his bride. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 wraps up Jesus' address to the seven churches of Asia with Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, this chapter, like the previous chapter, features a myriad of Old Testament images and symbols. God wants the church to know that their suffering exists within a larger narrative. Things aren't just happening to them. Christ reigns, and he will tie up all the loose ends of the Old Testament, and he will do so through his spirit-empowered church, through their faithful witness, through their suffering and persecution, even unto death. Therefore, the exhortation is this, don't give up, don't be afraid. Revelation is a book of hope. God is telling a story, and it ends with a victory and a feast, but only through the path of the cross, only through the path of denying yourself and following Christ. Before we dive into these churches, it's important to understand the structure of how John is laying out this address. So it's addressed to seven churches, and seven is symbolic for perfection, for completeness, for fullness. And there's also a pattern called a chiasm. The first church, Ephesus, parallels the seventh church, Laodicea. The second church, Smyrna, parallels the sixth church, Philadelphia. The third church, Pergamum, parallels Sardis. And Thyatira is the center church. And the central church of Thyatira is dealing with Jezebel, this prophetess who's leading people into sexual morality. And you're going to see later on in the book of Revelation talk about the whore of Babylon, about this harlot who rides on a beast. And so, this concept, this theme of a woman who is seducing people into false worship, into idolatry, begins here at the hinge point of these seven churches with Thyatira. So, if we understand this parallel, it can kind of illuminate some of the meaning that John is trying to evoke from his readers when he goes through each of these churches. So let's look at these last three churches, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Let's start with Sardis. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So chapter 3 begins with Christ's words to Sardis, to the messenger of Sardis, or the angel. Angel just means messenger. It can mean heavenly creature, but we've also talked in previous episodes about how it's most likely talking to the pastor of the church. So, Jesus is described as the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. So, again, seven represents fullness. So, the seven spirits symbolize the Holy Spirit. Christ possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And so, his messengers are vessels to deliver the word of Christ by the Spirit to God's people. Now, Christ recognizes Sardis as a corporate entity, not merely a collection of individuals. And this is important. A quarterback may put up career numbers, but if his team loses, it's counted as a loss on his record. Now, there are faithful believers who are doing what Christ asks in Sardis. They have not soiled their garments, but they walk in purity before God. They walk with white garments. Yet their faithfulness does not negate that Sardis as a whole, as a corporate entity, is falling under God's discipline. They have been faithless. Now, Daniel, the prophet, remained faithful to God, but he still went into exile. So God's judgment has a splash zone, and sometimes the righteous get hit by that. And the reason that Sardis is under God's judgment, or being threatened with God's discipline, is that Sardis exemplifies a church whose reputation does not match their reality. They're all hype, but no holiness. They appear healthy, but they're barely alive. And he has this idea of some of the parts of this tree, if if a church is a tree, some branches are healthy, but the majority of it is diseased. And if the majority of it is diseased, then the healthy branches are going to be affected by that. But notice that God, again, recognizes that there are faithful ones in the church. And he says, strengthen those, strengthen what remains. But understand this, that God is going to bring judgment upon this church if it does not correct itself. And the rebuke is pretty harsh. Wake up. Sardis is asleep. They're not paying attention because all they care about is the world's opinion of them or the opinion of other people. And it's ironic because God sees right through it all. Why do you care so much about the opinion of others when God himself knows your heart and what he sees is not good? So Jesus warns the unfaithful, remember what you were taught, wake up and repent, or else I'm going to come like a thief in the night to judge. And you can think about different parables that Jesus tells parables of the virgins with the lamps, being awake, being alert, knowing that Jesus could visit you at any time. Now, I don't think this is talking about a second coming per se, although it does have reference to it, but about Jesus' historic judgments. And again, remember, Revelation is talking about events that are soon to happen, that Jesus Christ is in control of human history. He's not just affecting you in your heart and in your quiet time, but he is actually doing things in human history. And that means historic judgments against real people. But God's judgments also have a purifying effect. In fact, his historic judgments serve to reveal his faithful ones. So he says, even though this church as a corporate entity may suffer, it's gonna reveal those who are the faithful remnant. You can think about the book of Exodus. The plagues against Egypt reveal the people of Israel. The exile reveals those who are the truly repentant ones, the remnant. And so God actually preserves his people through judgment not really from it in the sense of they're going to experience the effects of a corporate judgment, but it's through that corporate judgment that he preserves them and reveals them to be the faithful ones. And so those who are faithful need to be strengthened, knowing that even though God's going to bring temporary discipline, they themselves will be preserved and they will be revealed as the faithful ones. So the faithful who rejects Sardis's superficial reputation will receive in return a glorious and eternal reputation from Christ. And that's, that's the irony. He's saying, I'm going to confess your name before the Father if you repent, if you stay faithful. Isn't that a better audience than the world than people around you? Don't you want a reputation from the Father saying that you're faithful rather than fooling people around you? There's this idea of integrity that God knows the heart and we live our entire lives before the face of God. And God himself will demonstrate to the whole world that you're the real deal if you remain faithful. So Sardis, there's some good, there's a lot of bad, and the judgment will reveal and separate the good from the bad. And he promises that through this judgment, he's gonna reveal those who are truly his. Now let's look at Philadelphia. This is verses seven through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Christ addresses the church in Philadelphia as the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens. This is a fancy way of saying Jesus is in charge. He bears royal authority and uses this authority on behalf of his church. So Philadelphia is on the right side of history. But it's hard to stay on the right side when you're also on the losing side, at least from an earthly perspective. Philadelphia exists as a small collection of believers facing persecution from unbelieving Jews that hail from the synagogue of Satan. Once again, just like When I was talking about uh, the church at Smyrna, the issue is not ethnicity, but worship, worship of Christ. The Jewish Christians were, along with their Gentile brothers, claiming that Christ is the Messiah, that the church and not Israel was the people of God. But the people who are against them are Jews who are saying, no, you're worshiping a false messiah, you are splintering off from the true people of God, and that's a problem. And so, again, the early conflicts within Christianity were among the Jewish people, among and within the ethnic Jews of the time. Now, Christ is assuring Philadelphia that they're on the right side of history. And this is really key because, as, as we have mentioned in other episodes, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD is a key moment because it shows exactly who's right. Jesus prophesied that the temple would be destroyed. The Jews didn't believe him. And when Jesus actually prophesies correctly and the temple is destroyed within the generation time frame that he said, that shows pretty decisively in history who was right. Jesus was who he said he was and the people who were against him have now been proven wrong. And I think this is part of what John means when he says that God promises that the persecutors of the church will bow down before them. And they will learn that I have loved you. I think the judgment against the temple shows that, again, Philadelphia, despite being on the losing side, at least temporally speaking in that time period, will prove to be the winners because the temple will be destroyed. And this is a public vindication. God publicly judged Egypt and vindicated Moses with the Exodus. And now God will publicly judge Israel and vindicate the church before the whole world, which is a reference to the Roman Empire. That's what the whole world meant, the whole of the known empire. Now, again, this is not primarily about God's judgment at the end of history, but within history. So God does not take a hands-off approach to the world. God ended the entire old covenant framework of Israel by destroying their temple, just as Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24, which is what we were just talking about. Now, no temple means no sacrifices and no priesthood. God literally just ended the Judaic system. So this is like... If the Vatican were destroyed, all Catholics everywhere would be panicking. Or if Mecca, all Muslims would be panicking if Mecca was destroyed. In the same way, the temple being destroyed is going to affect all these Jews living out in Asia. In fact, a lot of Jews, part of the Jewish diaspora, the spreading, the scattering of Jews, lived outside of the city of Jerusalem. So this would have had a, a worldwide impact, the destruction of the temple. And that's the cataclysmic event that Revelation is pointing towards, that's being hinted at, In this passage to Philadelphia. But not only that, Rome itself surrounding Jerusalem is going to enter into their own civil war and a bunch of political instability after 70 AD. So God's judgment leaves a mark on human history. It actually disrupts the world orders and systems. So the church in Philadelphia may be an outcast now, but they have a citizenship in the New Jerusalem. They may be cast out of synagogues, but they are part of the true people of God. They may be cast out of the temple, and the temple may be destroyed itself, but they themselves will be made by God into pillars of a new temple. So you can start to see how Christianity becomes the fulfillment of Judaism, that Christ is bringing to pass all of the promises of the Old Testament. And though they may bear the mark of scorn, They bear the mark of God, his city, and his son, the name of God on their foreheads. That is the core identity of what a Christian is, Jew or Gentile. Ultimately, what marks them out is that they belong to Jesus Christ and that God has marked them with his own name and identity. Now, let's look at this final church, Laodicea, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ addresses the final church, Laodicea, as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Christ is the Amen to all God's promises and the purpose for which creation exists. He's the firstborn of God's new creation, the first fruits of a larger harvest. We can't understand our place in the world outside of Christ. And this is the problem with Laodicea. They think that they can understand themselves without depending upon their creator, upon Christ. Laodicea's wealth forms a veil of self-deception. They believe themselves wealthy but are, in fact, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Their sin is not that they possess money, but that money possesses them. And Christ threatens to spit them out of his mouth because they are lukewarm rather than hot or cold. They are self-deluded. They think that they are independent, that they've got it all together. And they don't realize the spiritual danger that they are in because of their pride. You may have heard this passage preached on a lot about being lukewarm. And the idea is that the water in Laodicea was neither cold nor hot, and it was lukewarm, which was, you know, infected with bacteria, and it tastes disgusting, so you spit out of your mouth, and so on and so forth. Well, that's actually not true. In fact, Craig Kester, who's a commentator, rejects this interpretation in his Revelation commentary because Laodicea not only possessed clean drinking water, but its water quality was actually praised by its visitors. So Kester actually suggests that the lukewarm reference and of being hot and cold refers to wine. Cold and warm wine were popular drinks in the first century, and hosts that served lukewarm wine insulted their guests. So this is about hospitality. Christ knocks at the door, desiring to eat with them, but they reject him with the lukewarm wine of arrogance. Oftentimes this passage is viewed as a salvation passage of letting Jesus enter into your heart as he knocks. And there's some kind of application to that, to be sure. But that's not the primary meaning. This is about a corporate entity. Again, it's about a church not being hospitable to Christ. And I think this probably points to Laodicea not being hospitable to one another. Because remember, Jesus identifies himself with his people. He talks about if you serve the poor or the thirsty or the hungry, you're really serving me. And so a lack of love amongst the church is a lack of love toward Christ, a lack of hospitality toward him. They're giving him lukewarm wine. They're not letting him inside to dine with them. So Christ responds to their arrogance and inhospitality with love. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And he says, why don't you, instead of buying these material goods, buy these spiritual goods for me, buy, buy gold refined by fire, buy the salve that can help you to see. Wear the garments that will clothe your nakedness. He's talking in spiritual terms. Christ refuses to be a means to an end. God's blessings of wealth become a curse when they obstruct our vision of Christ. And Christ promises a heavenly throne to those who reject the earthly throne of pride. He promises a greater exaltation than any self-exaltation we can give. Christ seats us with him in the heavenly places. And the enthroned king enthrones others. I want to park here for a second and, and think about that. He's saying, in order for you to know the blessing of knowing Christ... You've got to recognize your own dire state, that you really are blind, that you really are poor, that what is spiritual is of greatest importance, where you stand before God, obeying God, living the life that Christ has called you to and following him. That's the call. But notice the promise too. Christ says, if you open up your door, if you show me hospitality, I'll walk in and I'll fellowship with you. I think this is a veiled reference to the Lord's Supper, where every week... We come together and we partake and we have fellowship spiritually with Christ. And what does Paul say about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians? He says, if you guys are showing partiality, if you are not loving one another, then you're not really taking the Lord's Supper. You're denying what it symbolizes, the unity of the church, the one bread, the one body of the church. And in doing that, you're denying Christ. If you don't show hospitality to one another, you are not showing hospitality to Christ. So what we do in the church matters. Now, what's amazing about these seven churches is that they roughly sketch out the timeline of the Bible. Peter Lighthart sees this pattern. The first church, Ephesus, talks about Christ walking among the lampstands. Remember that lampstands in the temple are meant to symbolize trees which is meant to create the atmosphere of a garden. So the temple is a mini garden of Eden and Christ is walking among the churches like God walked with Adam. So Ephesus has this Genesis Edenic kind of feel. Then we go to Smyrna and Smyrna talks about the church being thrown into prison and suffering persecution and being slandered by brothers Well, we have this story in Joseph, where Joseph is slandered by his brothers. He's sent into prison, into captivity, but God preserves him and then gives him a crown, lifts him up, makes him an authority in Egypt, just like he promises to the church at Smyrna. Then we get to Pergamum, and Pergamum features Balaam and Balak, who terrorized Israel during their time in the wilderness. So this refers to the Exodus time and and the travels in this 40 years uh, following Moses to the promised land. And then you have Thyatira featuring Jezebel. Jezebel is a big part of the time of the kings. Elijah faces off against her. She's causing all kinds of trouble in the kingdom of Israel. And you also have the Daniel imagery of a statue with a flame of fire and feet with burnished bronze. That's how Christ is described. And Daniel's all about future kingdoms. And the promise that Jesus gives at the end of this passage to Thyatira in chapter 2 is that the one who conquers is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. He's going to have authority over the nations. He's going to break all of his enemies, have authority from the Father. All of it is kingly language. Remember, King David was promised an eternal kingdom and sovereignty over the nations and an everlasting reign, and that is all fulfilled in Christ And so you see the king language in Thyatira. Then you move further to Sardis. Sardis is talking about remembering and repenting and waking up and how there are some who have not soiled their garments, which is talking back to prophetic literature, using those symbols of soiling garments as being disobedient to God, having the priesthood reject God, it's all over Ezekiel, and Jeremiah talks about that as well. This idea that the religious elites in Israel have abandoned them, and that has brought judgment upon the nation. And yet there's always a remnant. That's also a huge feature in the prophetic literature. There's always going to be a remnant that remains faithful, that God preserves even through exile. So we go from the kings under Thyatira to the exile in Sardis. Then in Philadelphia, we have the return from exile. It talks about the opening of a door, the authority of God to bring his people back and to restore them. And he says that they're going to have a new Jerusalem, temple pillars, all all this temple language. It's the idea of being rebuilt. And you see that in Nehemiah and Ezra and all those types of prophetic literatures and, and those books. You can see that there, the return from exile. And then Laodicea is the final one. And what do we see here? We see a church that is not hospitable to Jesus. We see Jesus coming to his own people and being rejected. Well, that's the Gospels. That's him dwelling among his people and the people there who should open their arms, who think that they see but are actually blind, who think that they're rich but are actually poor, who are hypocrites, who don't realize that they're actually on the wrong side of things. We talk about the Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, all of the opposition that he faced in his earthly ministry. I think it's being described in the life of Laodicea. So you can see that. From Genesis to Joseph to the time of the wilderness to the kings to the exile to the return from exile and then finally to first century Jerusalem where the Messiah comes and is rejected by his own. He knocks and they do not let him in. They do not want fellowship with him. And what you start to see is that God is telling a story in human history. The problems are mounting against the church, but Christ does not despair. He knows the narrative. He knows what God is doing, and he rules and reigns with confidence. He treats sin with serious confidence, and the world twists and turns, but God's purposes in history cannot be thwarted. And he speaks to a corporate church, but he preserves the faithful by name. He strengthens the weak church against their enemies, and he rebukes the arrogant church in love because he desires to dine with them in fellowship. Christ walks with his bride in perfect faithfulness, guiding her into the world and through history to a glorious feast. Thanks for listening to this episode. We're going to have another episode come out next week. We're going to look at chapters 4 and 5, which is when things get really wild. We're going to get a vision of heaven and the heavenly temple and all that transpires with that. But if this was helpful for you, make sure you subscribe to the 4Oaks Midtown podcast, share it with your friends, and let people know about it. And hopefully it can be a help for you and others as you dive into this powerful book, the book of Revelation.